And then he puts Simeon in custody and says the rest can go home with the grain he gives them, but they must come back with the younger brother, Benjamin, who's back at home. And only if they come back with him will they pass the test that they are not spies. And so we pick up the story as the family who had some grain from Egypt begins to run out of grain. Genesis 43, the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father, that's Jacob or Israel, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said to him, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also. And arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid, because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time, that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, 
We indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. The word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's blessing. O glorious God, seated in the heavenlies above all is light and all is bright, where the radiance of your glory shines and the angels worship you, and the saints who have run their course gather around you. And Father, we acknowledge that if but one ray of your radiance would shine upon us tonight, your word would be light, our hearts would have faith, our pathway would be illuminated, and we, O oh Lord, would be cheered. We ask, Father, that you would grant us your blessing tonight speaking to us, opening our eyes, and filling our souls through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, congregation, I've entitled tonight's message, Under Care. It's language that you might be familiar with. In the medical realm, if somebody's in a hospital, we might say that they're under the care of Dr. So-and-so, and Dr. So-and-so then is, is looking out for them. He's ordering the tests, he's prescribing the medications and treatments and so forth. If you come from Presbyterian circles, you might have heard the term in, in, in relationship to a man aspiring to the ministry. Presbyterians have a, a policy, some of them, that if a, a young man aspires to the ministry, he has to be examined, I believe, concerning his faith and his, his desires for ministry, and then he's taken under the care of the presbytery, the regional church, 
And they take responsibility for, for mentoring him now and guiding him and overseeing him in this process of preparation for the ministry. He's come under the care of the presbytery. But I choose the title tonight because, first of all, Benjamin comes under the care of Judah, who takes responsibility for him as they go down to Egypt. And then as Joseph sees his brothers again and recognizes them, then he sends them to his house under the care of his steward. But the greatest thing here of all is that in all of this, the family of Jacob, the church of the Old Testament, is under the care of the covenant Lord, who at every step here and at every turn is caring for them. He's breaking them and remaking them. He's shepherding their souls and refining them through the fires. And we shouldn't fail tonight to see the hand of our God in all of this. In seeing God's hand, what a comfort to know that that we still this evening remain the people under the care of the Lord God. And what's remarkable, I think, is that that all this care is being applied in a way that's, that's completely oblivious to Jacob's family. They have no idea that the man in Egypt is Jacob's son and their brother. They have no idea that the man in Egypt is God's instrument. To, to sift them and to cause their guilt to rise that it might be confessed and they might be healed and restored. They have no idea that this man in Egypt has sent it ahead of them to, to save them from the famine. And as we see that tonight, it tonight, it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that, that God's ways are deep and profound and things are not always as they seem. We, we are a bit presumptuous to think that in the midst of any trial that we know what's going on and we know what's happening when in reality we don't know the hundredth part of it we have no idea all the purposes of God at any moment in our lives but we do know this that we're under his care we are under the care of the covenant Lord who works all things together for our good so let's look at that tonight and be encouraged that Jacob's family In Joseph's hand is the church under the care of God. I'd like to look at that in in four parts this evening, looking at God's work in Judah, then in Jacob, and then through the steward, and then through Joseph here. And before we get started, I want to give credit to James Dixon, his uh, book, Expository Thoughts on Genesis. I don't know if I've read it too much before, but I'm indebted tonight to some of his insights and some of his language. So I recommend him to you. Let's look first of all at Judah's step forward here. The famine, we're told, was severe in the land, so it continues to afflict the world and and also this family. And so the food they brought back begins to run out. And now Father Jacob, Israel, tells the sons, why don't you go back and, and buy a little more food? And he seems kind of to downplay it. Go buy a little more food, as if it's not a big deal. They've probably been around this bush a few times already. And so Judah states, as clearly as can be, we ain't going if you don't send Benjamin with us. The man will not see us. We won't get any bread. There's no point in going. And then Father Israel explodes. Why did you deal so wrongfully with me that you told the man you have another brother back home? And then the sons say, you're being completely unreasonable. How could we have known when he asked us questions, what he was up to? And we begin to see here that, that the test that's being applied to this family, to this wayward family through Joseph, is it's having its effect, isn't it? It's like, 
in the older style washing machines, it has in the middle, you know, that spindle, the agitator. And it twists and it jerks and it pulls the clothes around so that the, the dirt will come out. And this family is in God's washing machine and these tests are the agitator. But in the midst of this, Judah steps forward and he says... He says, verse 8, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. And now we have that language for the third time, for the third time. Father Jacob had used that language back in chapter 42. And then Joseph had used the language, so I'm going to test you. Do this and you shall live. Go home and get your brother and come back. And now Judah says it, that we may live and not die. And again, it's so profound in the book of the Bible. It has introduced us to death. It has told us the story of how death came into the world through one man's sin and how death has spread to all. And now everyone's taken up with this theme. How can we live and not die? Well, the book of Genesis is not about death. The book of Genesis is about life. How to live and not die is the theme. And it's God's theme. It's God's story. This is not the story of of Abraham or Isaac or or Jacob. This is the story of God's redemption. And at this point in the story, Joseph is the preserver of life. He's the one through whom this family will be not only healed of their sin and guilt here in a way, but but will be fed through the famine so that this family can live and not die. And from them can come the one who will come forward saying, I have come that they may have life, Jesus Christ. So as we read Genesis, just as we read every book of the Bible, we're not just learning a few moral lessons about how to be good people. Across every page of the scriptures, it's the coming Christ or the having come Christ that appears in whom we have life. And as we read the scriptures, we shouldn't be content with a few moral lessons, but we should always ask, how is this a revelation of Christ? Or how is Christ at this point in history saving his people? And tonight, we see he's doing it by putting pressure on this family. If they don't return to get food, they will die. If they do return to get food, they might be enslaved. And so things are really heating up. And what's going to happen? Well, surprisingly, it's Judah that steps forward here. Not just as the spokesman for his brothers, but Judah steps forward to take full responsibility. He says, verse 9, I myself will be surety for him, for, for the, the young one, Benjamin. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, that is striking if you remember that Judah was not the most impressive character. Judah is the one who had suggested to the brothers that they sell Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites instead of killing him. And then Judah, as we saw in chapter 38, left the covenant circle to live among the Canaanites, to have Canaanite friends and a Canaanite wife and do Canaanite things, even to the point of visiting what he thought was a prostitute. Judah lived for himself. Plain and simple. He lived for himself. But as we saw in chapter 38, God had apparently begun to humble him. Now the Lord's doing a great work and Judah will take the responsibility. He will seek the good of this family. He won't just say, forget you guys, I'm going off on my own, I'm going to survive, I'm going to find a way. You guys can die. 
But he's going to go down to rescue Simeon, who's in custody in Egypt. He's going to take care of Benjamin and not sell him out as he did to Joseph. He's going to shoulder the blame if things go wrong. And you begin to get here hints that our Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, is at work. Because it's the Christ who will say before the Father, may I bear their blame. It's the Christ who's spoken of in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's the Christ who took responsibility for our lives and for our guilt and for our sin before the face of the Father. And when he goes to work in a people, he he reshapes us to be a different kind of people. You see, early on in the Bible, as sin came into the world, the the natural inclination of the heart was to say, as Cain said, where's Abel? Who knows? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for my brother? But as the Christ goes to work, the tone changes, doesn't it? I will be responsible for my brother. Let me bear the responsibility for my brother. And this really is, isn't it, brothers and sisters, the beauty of the church? That instead of so many independent islands saying, who cares about the other? In the church, we are bound together in Christ to stick with one another, to bear the burdens of each other, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to care about the other person. And that's a work of Christ's grace. Isn't it a wonderful thing to belong to IRC and to see the Spirit of Christ at work and that we're not on our own? There's people who, who love you. There's people who care about your life. There's people who will step up to sacrifice themselves for your interest. I want to commend you for your love for each other, and I want to point you to your Savior and say, as you experience those bonds of fellowship and love, do you give praise to the Christ who alone creates them? And say to the Father and say to your Savior, I don't deserve this, but thank you, Lord, for giving me this family. So we see Judas Judas stepping forward. But then turn your eyes to the Lord's work here in Jacob. Jacob. In the last chapter, when the sons got home with the grain from Egypt, they all discovered money in their sacks, the money with which they had paid for the grain. And they were terrified now because it appeared in their minds that now they were liable to accusation, that they stole the grain, that they didn't pay for it, that they robbed Egypt. And Jacob, at that point in chapter 42, as we saw, was a man who had no words of comfort for his son, sons because Jacob had no comfort for himself. All the way back in chapter 37, when the sons come home from taking care of the sheep, and they say, is this Joseph's coat? And uh, yeah, it looks like he's been eaten by a wild beast. Then you remember we read in Genesis 37 that all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort Father Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to death to my son in mourning. Now, I don't presume to know what it's like to lose a son. We may well have some sympathy for Father Jacob. But that 
sorrowing he had was not biblical sorrowing. It was the bitterness of one who refused to be comforted. No matter what you say to me, I won't be comforted. No matter what God says to me, I will not be comforted. Now, over time, Jacob begins to find some comfort. But where does he find it? He finds the comfort by looking to his favorite wife, Rachel's other son, Benjamin. And he crams Benjamin into that hole in his heart that Benjamin might be his comfort. And now, at this point in chapter 43, he's between a rock and a hard place, right? Because if he won't send Benjamin with the brothers down to Egypt, then Benjamin's going to starve to death. They're all going to starve to death. And if he will send Benjamin down to Egypt, then he might lose Benjamin forever. So what's he to do? Jacob has come to the end of his rope. James Dixon asks, have you ever said, I have come to the end of my rope? You've used up every ounce of energy and creativity to solve a problem, and the problem remains. There's Father Jacob. He's, he's waited as long as he could. Can't wait any longer. There's nothing he can do. There's no way out of this. He's at the end of his rope. The Lord brings us to that point sometimes, doesn't he? In financial struggles or in pains and sorrows of a relationship that goes wrong, or whatever it might be, and it seems very horrible to us. But look at what God does through the situation here. He's at a critical point here. God is summoning Father Jacob to lay Benjamin in the hands of the Lord and to rely utterly on God. Now, actually, Jacob's been at this point before in his life. Jacob's been at this very point formerly in his life. Remember when, when he was returning to the land of Canaan, he heard Esau was on his way to meet him with 400 armed men on horses. And Esau's the one who years earlier was out to kill his brother Jacob for his twisting, scheming, stealing of the birthright. And Jacob remaining on the other side of the river, remember that night he wrestled with a man, he wrestled with the Lord and would not let him go until the Lord blessed him. And then the Lord said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now it's remarkable that in this chapter 43, the name Israel returns. Verse 6, and Israel said, Verse 8, then Judah said to Israel. Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them. And God's doing a great work in the heart of this patriarch. And now the one who refused to be comforted says in verse 14 to his sons, he says, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. And now the one who had refused to be comforted is seeking comfort because that title, God Almighty, Hebrew El Shaddai, is the very title God had used in speaking to Abraham. Chapter 17, I am God Almighty. Genesis 28, when Jacob was sent to go find a wife from his mother's family, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, his father said to him. And then God himself proclaimed the name in Genesis 35. 
I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. El Shaddai is the Almighty, the all-sufficient God who is able to turn his promises into reality despite the circumstances. He's able to build the covenant family and bring his promises to pass. He can take the situation where the promises seem so utterly threatened that there's no way out of this. It's an impossible situation, and God Almighty can do something about it. And now Jacob remembers the name. May God Almighty give you mercy, my sons. Before this great man in Egypt, in this terrifying situation, may God Almighty. What a blessing to remember the name of the Lord. Here we see how how good God is to, to use the trial, to put the squeeze on Jacob, not to destroy him, but to press him into returning to confidence in the Lord. The next time that you feel trials beyond your strength, then remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, that he pleaded three times for God to remove this tormentor, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. And Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Didn't remove the tormentor, but he said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul confesses, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The less of me, yes, then the more of you, Lord, in my life. James Dixon writes on the Genesis passage, From this moment, the story begins to turn. The writer of Genesis has skillfully led the reader to understand that when one is fully at the mercy of God, it is a good place to be. Being at the end of the rope is indeed a very good place to be if we find God there. If we need God's mercy, it is a good place to be. Can you look back over your life tonight and recognize in some capacity that you sit here tonight with your confidence in the Lord due precisely to the trials God has brought into your life by which to break you and make you under his care. And can you recognize tonight perhaps even the blessing that your reshaping has been for those around you? The patriarch of the twelve had nothing to say to his sons when they returned the first time. They needed comfort. They needed direction. They needed hope. And he had nothing for them but to tremble with them in fear that the money was with them. But now as God pries open the hand of Jacob to lay his idol aside, to put his hope in God, he's able to say to his sons, May El Shaddai give you mercy. There's one who is able, who is mighty, to take even the heart of this prince of Egypt and to work this for good. What a blessing to be able to speak words of encouragement to those 
under our care. Parents and grandparents, isn't it good to have our idols pried away? To have our hearts opened up to accept God's comfort so that we can profess his good name before our children and grandchildren. Because if we're not trusting in the Lord, then all we have is the same hopeless bitterness to offer them as Father Jacob did. But when we've surrendered to the Lord to say, my hope is in El Shaddai, God Almighty. It's not in my wisdom to get out of this. It's not in my strength. Then we have a word that we can speak to those under our care. And we may tell them there is a God who takes care. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about your covenant, Lord. And all the way back to Egypt, the sons might have been asking themselves, Having heard a confession from their father they haven't heard perhaps for 22 years, they might have been asking themselves, God Almighty, does he do that kind of thing? Does he show mercy to peasants like us? God Almighty, does he show mercy to guilty ones like us? And they go back to Egypt, where we see thirdly tonight the Lord's work through Joseph's steward. Let's consider the steward's mystery here. When Joseph sees that the brothers have returned and they brought Benjamin with them, and then Joseph moves really to a, another phase of the test. The ones who are accused of being spies are now suddenly brought home to his house. You might think it's the good cop, bad cop scenario here. He was rough with them before, and now he's coming over for lunch. But they're afraid that he's actually taken them to his house to confiscate the donkeys and to enslave them because of their money that they have stolen. And so they take the earliest opportunity they have to tell the steward who's bringing these men to Joseph's house that, hey, look, here's what happened. We opened our sacks, found the money. We, we brought it back. We brought other money to buy the grain. We're, we're not thieves. And the steward of Joseph's house just casually brushes it all off. And he says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Now, that's, that's amazing. Brothers don't comment on those words in our text, but, but that's amazing. They're saying, we don't know who put the money in our sacks. And, and the pagan... Stuart is saying to them, your God put the money in your sacks. Now, actually, in the last chapter, they did know who put the money in their sacks. Their hearts failed them. They turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Right? In the last chapter, they said, God's out to destroy us. He put the money in our sacks. What he, what's he doing to us? And now... They say, we don't know who put the money in. And the steward says, God gave you treasure. And he says, peace be with you, shalom with you. And he points them not to an Egyptian God. This steward in Egypt doesn't say, you know, money in your sacks? Welcome to Egypt, the land of magical happenings where Egyptian gods... Give people gold. 
No, he says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure. What this steward knew about God, we don't know. It is interesting in Psalm 105 that it says about Joseph that God made him ruler of Pharaoh's house and his possessions to bind princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. God sent Joseph to Egypt to teach his elders wisdom. Did Joseph teach the steward who El Shaddai is? Maybe. Maybe a true wisdom. Maybe he wasn't a pagan. Or maybe Joseph simply instructed him, when they ask about the money, here's what you're supposed to say. But in any case, here is the steward evangelizing the church and proclaiming good news to them. Now, the brothers are uneasy by this, aren't they? Because they actually want to give the money back. Please take it. Just take it. We want to pay our fair share. We, we, want, we want this all to be above board. We want to give you the money. Will you please take the money? And the steward is saying, no, 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 no. So here they are now. They don't know what's going on. What, what's going on? Is it when Joseph gets home, he's going to accuse them? He's going to search them, find the gold on them, and, 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 and take them as slaves? They want to pay their way. And they can pay for grain. But you know what they can't pay for? They can't pay for the life of Joseph, whom they sold into slavery whom they tried to destroy. They can't pay their way with that one. Forgiveness for that will be pure grace, pure gift of God, undeserved mercy. Does El Shaddai do that kind of thing? Your God and the God of your father gave you the money. Does El Shaddai do that kind of thing? Does he give gifts to those who are undeserving? Can we, brothers and sisters, rest in grace? You know, it's interesting that when our consciences are guilty, then even the blessings of God provoke angst, don't they? And if today it's not the difficulties of life that are eating away at our conscience, but it's the blessings of God that are agitating our conscience, then in that case, too, run to the Lord and receive forgiveness and come clean with God. But finally tonight, look at the Lord's work through Joseph. Joseph's dinner redo. Joseph comes in now and comes home here for lunch or dinner. In verse 27, he asks them about their well-being, about their shalom, and that of their father. Then he asks, is this a young man, your brother, Benjamin? And then after weeping over Benjamin in the other room, he comes in and they serve the food. And Joseph sits apart from them. And all of this is eerily reminiscent of what actually happened in chapter 37. The father, Jacob, sent Joseph to go ask his brothers about their shalom. Is it well with them? Go check on that. When Joseph comes to them, they grab him and throw him a pit. And then while he's in the pit, they, apart from him, sit down to eat a meal. And Joseph seems to be replaying the situation a bit here. And they received the strangest hint that 
that somebody knows them better than they thought. Because when they're seated, verse 33, they're seated from firstborn down to the youngest. How do you get 11 brothers in order if you don't know them? Right? We play those kinds of games. Who, you know, brother, two sisters, two brothers. Who do you think is older? Well, try it with 11. Put them in order. Does that kind of thing just happen by coincidence or chance? Maybe they sat down and began to think, well, this is nice. Don't know how it happened. But at least in Egypt, they respect the order. They respect rank. They observe age. And they honor us according to that. But then Joseph interjects something, overturning the whole order. When they bring out the food, the youngest gets five times as much. And Joseph has interjected into this scenario the favoritism. The favoritism that had so angered the brothers, had made them so mad at Joseph with his coat of many colors that they wanted to kill him. And now he tests them. What will they do? When the order's overturned, it's not the firstborn getting double portion. It's the last getting five times as much. Will they jump up in anger and say, what's going on? Even in Egypt, all this, all this baloney about Rachel's children getting the best. But they're tested and they drank and were merry with him. Maybe they weren't just being tested or being taught. Because you see, actually, you might be saying to yourself, well, why would they be upset that Benjamin gets five times as much? If anything, they want Joseph to recognize Benjamin. They want Joseph to say, oh, yes, I'm pleased with Benjamin. You've brought Benjamin. Then we know we're safe. Might be a great relief to them that Joseph was so focused on Benjamin and that he liked Benjamin and honored Benjamin then we know we've made it. But if they've learned that, then they've begun to see that distinctions are not always wrong. Father Jacob's favoritism was sinful. But the brothers were also angry at Joseph because God favored Joseph with those dreams which said Joseph would be exalted, and that angered them too. But what if God's distinctions... In God's choices, we're not things that destroyed us but brought us life. Then would it look different to us? The scribes and Pharisees were told in the book of Matthew that they sought to kill Jesus for envy. They hated his distinction. They hated the honor he had. They hated the wisdom he had. They hated the authority he bore and the miracles he did. They hated him. But had they realized that in God's distinction of choosing the Christ is our life, they might have seen it differently. When God blesses our brother or sister with great success in their business, or with great joy in their family, with great spiritual gifts? Is that the source of our angst and anger and envy? Are we able to say, in God's choice, there's blessing for us all?
the brothers eat and drink and are merry. Are they perhaps beginning to pass the test? As we end tonight, we come back to the beginning to think about that wonder that we are the church under God's care. We have no idea all that God is up to in our lives. We cannot possibly parse out all the meanings of that agitator as we are put through God's washing machine. But we know God is good. We know God is faithful. And maybe it's even tonight in the midst of one of our trials that we too are being retried. And by God's grace, we're passing the test. He is proving his work in us. That he has remade us and reshaped us and refit us for his service. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do lift up our hearts to you. To God seated in heaven. The God of all wisdom, the God of all might the covenant Lord El Shaddai, who works out his purposes in ways unbeknownst to us, the God who's never been counseled by anyone, but with mysterious and profound wisdom is able to separate even those clinging particles of sin from us. We thank you, O Lord, that you are at work upon us. We pray we won't grow weary as you test us and try us. We pray, God, you will give us the grace to be made and molded. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We rejoice to be the people under your care. Hold us tight this week and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen.